he begged the hotelier for a cup of coffee on credit so that he might sit a while and consider how best to proceed. This request was granted, and he was still sitting at the bar some three-quarters of an hour later when Francis Carver appeared, sponsorship papers in hand. Carver made his offer in plain speech and without preamble. He would provide enough capital to furnish Staines with a miner's right, a swag, and a ticket to the nearest payable goldfield. He added casually that he would also be happy to pay any debts that Staines might have occurred in Dunedin since his arrival the previous day. In return, Staines would agree to sign over half shares of his first claim, with dividends in perpetuity, and this income would be routed back to Carver's account in Dunedin by private mail. Emery Staines knew at once that he had been played for a fool. He remembered enough of the early hours of the previous evening to know that Carver had been excessively solicitous of him, ensuring that his bets were always matched, his company was always lively, and his glass was always filled. He also had the shadowy sense that the gambling debt had been imposed upon him in some way, for his weakness for cards was of a very ordinary, cheerful sort, and he had never before thrown away such a large sum of money in a single evening. But he was amused that he had been swindled so soon after his adventure began, and his amusement led him to feel a kind of affection for Carver, as one feels affection for a crafty opponent in chess. He decided to chalk the whole business up to experience, and accepted Carver's terms of sponsorship with characteristic good humour, but he resolved privately to be more vigilant in the future. To have been bested once was diverting, but he swore that he would not be bested a second time. Staines was not a terribly good judge of character. He loved to be enchanted, and so was very often drawn to persons whose manner was suggestive of tragedy, romance, or myth. If he suspected that there was a strain of something very dastardly in Carver, he conceived of that quality only in the most fanciful, piratical sense. Had he pursued this impression, he would have found only that it delighted him. Carver was more than twenty years Staines senior, and was as brawny and dark as Staines was slight and fair. He held himself in the manner of one ready to inflict damage at any moment, spoke gruffly, and very rarely smiled. Staines thought him wonderful. Once the contract had been signed, Carver's manner became gruffer still. Otago, he said, was past its prime as a goldfield. Staines would do much better to make for the new-built town of Hokitika in the west, where, as rumour had it, a man could make his fortune in a single day. The Hokitika landing was notoriously treacherous, however, and two steamers had been wrecked already upon the bar. For this reason, Carver insisted that Staines make the passage to the west coast under sail rather than under steam. If Staines would consent to accompany him firstly to the Custom House, secondly to the Outfitters on Prince's Street, and thirdly to the Reserve Bank, their arrangement could be finalised by noon. Staines did consent, and within three hours he was in possession of a miner's right, a swag, and a ticket to Hokitika upon the schooner Blanche, which was not due to depart Port Chalmers until the morning of the 13th of May. Over the two weeks that followed, Staines and Carver saw a great deal of one another. Carver had a month of shore leave while the bark upon which he worked was refitted and recorked. He took his lodging, as Staines also did, at the Hawthorne Hotel on George Street. They very often breakfasted together, 
and occasionally Staines accompanied Carver in his chores and appointments around the city, chattering all the while. Carver did not discourage this, and although he communicated little beyond a repressed and constant anxiety, Staines flattered himself that his company was a gratifying and much-needed diversion. Emery Staines knew very well that he created a singular impression in the minds of all those whom he met. This knowledge had become, over time, an expectation, as a consequence of which his singularity had become even more pronounced. His manner showed a curious mixture of longing and enthusiasm, which is to say that his enthusiasms were always of a wistful sort, and his longings always enthusiastic. He was delighted by things of an improbable or impractical nature, which he sought out with the open-hearted gladness of a child at play. When he spoke, he did so originally, and with an idealistic agony that was enough to make all but the most rigid of his critics smile. When he was silent, one had the sense, watching him, that his imagination was nevertheless usefully occupied, for he often sighed or nodded, as though in agreement with an interlocutor whom no one else could see. His disposition to be sunny was, it seemed, unshakable. However, this attitude had not been formed in consultation with any moral code. In general, his beliefs were intuitively rather than scrupulously held, and he was not selective in choosing his society, feeling, in his intuitive way, that it was the duty of every thinking man to expose himself to a great range of characters, situations, and points of view. He had read extensively, and although he favoured the romantics above all others, and never tired of discussing the properties of the sublime, he was by no means a strict disciple of that school, or indeed of any school at all. A solitary, unsupervised childhood, spent for the most part in his father's library, had prepared Emery Staines for a great many possible lives, without ever preferring one. He might just as soon be found in mourning dress, debating Cicero and Seneca, as in boots and woolen trousers, ascending a mountain in search of a view, and in both cases he was bound to be enjoying himself a great deal. On his twenty-first birthday, he was asked where he wished to go in the world, to which he immediately responded, Otago knowing that the rushes in Victoria had abated, and having long been enamoured of the idea of the prospector's life, which he conceived of in terms quixotic and alchemical. He saw the metal shining, unseen, undiscovered, upon some lonely beach of some uncharted land. He saw the moon rising full and yellow over the open sea. He saw himself riding on horseback through the shallows of a creek, and sleeping on the bare earth, and running water through a wooden cradle— and twining digger's dough around a stick to bake above the embers of a fire. What a fine thing it would be, he thought, to be able to say that one's fortune was older than all the ages of men and history, to say that one had chanced upon it, had plucked it from the earth with one's own bare hands. His request was granted. Passage was duly bought upon the steamer Fortunate Wind, bound for Port Chalmers. On the day of his departure, his father advised him to keep his wits about him, to practice kindness, and to come home once he had seen enough of the world to know his place in it. Foreign travel, he said, was the very best of educations, and it was a gentleman's duty to see and understand the world. Once they had shaken hands, he presented young Staines with an envelope of paper money, advised him not to spend it all at once, and bid him good morning, 
quite as if the boy were simply stepping out 